Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm your host, Shreya Gupta, and today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Jeffrey Marks here with us today. Dr. Marks is a professor, director of surgical endoscopy, program director at Case Western University Hospitals, Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Marks hails from Wisconsin. He did his medical schooling at Tufts, followed by general surgery residency, as well as advanced endoscopy at Mount Sinai Medical Center. He did a six-month advanced endoscopy fellowship under the world-renowned Dr. Jeffrey Ponsky. In addition to running a complex clinical practice in minimally invasive surgery and advanced therapeutic endoscopy, Dr. Marks spearheads an active animal lab researching numerous endoscopic techniques, providing endoscopic training courses for surgeons, gastroenterologist, and allied healthcare. Dr. Marks is now serving as the president of Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. We are so honored to have you, Dr. Marks, on our podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very honored to be here as well. We would like to start off um, this podcast by kind of learning more about your background and what led you to surgery. Starting in medical school, I was very interested in anatomy at that time. Many years ago, a lot of it was done in terms of prosection and cadaver dissections, and I really enjoyed anatomy, and I think that's what led me into a career of surgery. I think my father, who was a physician, not a surgeon, would say it's because I loved dissecting frogs and fish and things like that. But I think once I got into medical school, I think I was destined to go on into surgery, and it really is kind of fortunately proved to be a very um, enjoyable part of uh, my career. And as for the fellowship training, that was something also that I was lucky enough to fall into the lap of a great surgical endoscopist and surgeon uh, named Jeff Ponsky. What big changes have you seen in the field of MIS, minimally invasive surgery, in the past uh, decade or two? That's a great question. And things in the early 90s, again, were very much kind of the great wild west. People were trying to do many things to push the envelope of surgical uh, innovation. And at that time, we really didn't have a great understanding at times of surgical anatomy based on minimally invasive techniques. But over the last decade or two, with the advent of different tools, whether they be staplers or tissue welding or ultrasonic shears, and then onto other enabling tools like robotics. Um, I think we've seen our ability to really mimic uh, general surgery in a very minimally invasive fashion. And I would tell you that, it, unfortunately, I think people are not getting the training maybe in open surgery. And someday in the next 30 or 50 years, maybe you'll have a podcast on how to do open surgery rather than minimally invasive surgery, because that may be a lost art. Your other big passion that I we all know about is surgical education, and I kind of wanted to get your two cents on the changing landscape of resident education and where 
where do you think we have made the most progress and where do you think um, we are headed in this, uh, like I said, changing environment of uh, training surgical residents? That's a very good question as well. And I don't have all the answers and there are many people far smarter and more experienced in surgical education. But in my mind, one of the things that we've seen is that there are so many new techniques and procedures that have been adopted. It makes it so hard for us to stay on top of this. Right now, five years of training is supposed to teach a surgical resident how to do over 300 different procedures when it comes to general surgery. And that's obviously quite a daunting you know, task to become competent, let alone proficient, in all of those different procedures. I know that we have several assessment tools now, whether it be FLS or FES that are available, but there are still, as I said, hundreds of procedures that we don't have very good assessment tools. And hopefully over time, things like video-based assessments or other types of proficiency metrics will be available so that we know that after those five years of training, people are coming out being able and available to do these procedures. Um, I think one of the other things, and maybe you've discussed it on prior podcasts, is that many general surgery residents still, still feel that they have to do surgical fellowships. And when I say feel they have to do it, for two reasons. One is they're either not getting the skill set they need during the surgical residency, or because of these super specialized techniques, they feel that they need to get more, again, specialized training. But someday, hopefully we'll be able to bring that back into surgical residency and get that subspecialized training um, during the five to seven years that residents are involved in that actual, um, uh, you know, pre-graduate state. And I think that's actually a good lead into our dissection of the day where we really wanted to talk to you about um, minimally invasive surgery kind of in the scope of resident education And my um, first big question for you is kind of just getting definitions. So, you know, how do you see MIS fitting into the definition of general surgery, fitting into the definition of a fellowship? And I'll give you a little background on where I'm coming from with this question is that, you know, a lot of um, surgical specialties now do laparoscopic surgery. Um, and then there's, you know, the MIS specialists that do endoscopic surgery as well. Um, and then we talk about um, the rural surgeons or global surgeons who are doing endoscopy. And, um, and so it's just, where, you know, where do we draw the lines with each? And um, another follow-up with that is I was speaking to one of the MIS fellows at my institution, and she was telling me that we're leading towards a point where MIS as a subspecialty is going to be defined by foregut surgery. So I was just wondering what your thoughts are on all of that. Yeah, I, I think that 20 years ago, MIS was a technique, putting a laparoscope in, putting the trocars in, understanding the tools that were available for minimum invasive surgery. And it's still a nomenclature that I think is very important. And I don't think we're going to lose the moniker of MIS. But we also have to remember that as surgeons, we are still disease-based physicians. And whether you are an MIS endocrine surgeon or an MIS HPV surgeon or MIS foregut or colorectal surgeon, we are still tackling diseases just using, as we said, a minimally invasive avenue for it. And I will say that I still want to make sure everyone learns how to do things in an open fashion, 
because God forbid someday I need an open, close hysterectomy. I want to make sure Shreya knows how to do that. But um, I think as we look at the different techniques that are available, um, you do bring up a very good point is that MIS fellowships right now through the fellowship council are probably predominantly considered for good training, but you still have all the other fellowships such as bariatrics, colorectal, flexible endoscopy, um, HPB. And I think in those different subsets, you will find a need to understand the concept of two-handed surgery, understanding surgical energy, tissue extraction, tissue, you know, access to the abdominal cavity, and all the different things that come with it. Um, so I think most of us in surgical education would like to get away from just looking at these as techniques, but looking at them also as disease management. Um, and it's hard because it is a technique, and I get that. And that's where one of the criticisms comes in with many of the fellowship and MIS training is we're just training a technique. Um, so I, I think that's something that hopefully over the next 20 years we'll, we'll continue to be able to answer that uh, dilemma. I think I, I never personally, you know, when we think about MIS as a fellowship, uh, you know, we think about endoscopy and we think about foregut surgery, but I think the way you put that into perspective, that it is still a disease-based uh, uh, fellowship, that uh, that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, my follow-up question to this was, um, when we talk about endoscopies and um, doing uh, endoscopy, colonoscopies, um, and some surgeons go ahead to do their ERCP kind of training as well. Um, as these, as more and more of these procedures get into uh, the realm of the of our GI doctors, our gastroenterologists, how do you see uh, general surgery residents kind of fitting um, in this scenario? Um, how competent should they still be in this training, and um, how do you see this changing for uh, the ge next generation of uh, general surgeons? Okay. Well, again, a wonderfully loaded question for me because, you know, that's my big kind of love and what I've been on my kind of soapbox for many decades is trying to implore surgeons to do flexible endoscopy. And that comes from my mentor, Jeff Lansky, who is, again, one of the really kind of premier surgical endoscopists from, you know, from this country. Um, I think that if you look back a little bit first and look at the history of flexible endoscopy, it really is a surgical-based innovation. Although way back when, when all we could do is do diagnostic procedures and surgeons didn't really find a big, you know, advantage for knowing how to do flexible endoscopy, pretty much every big kind of step forward in flexible endoscopy, everything from ERCT to variceal banding, to PEG, to strata, to BAREC, to actually colonoscopy and polypectomy are all surgeons that created these procedures. I do accept the fact that gastroenterologists have obviously pushed things forward as well with many things like ESD, but also recently things such as POEM was also developed by a surgeon. And I think that we have to remember that we have been involved in flexible endoscopy and it's part of our makeup. The other thing to remember, and I think maybe for the listener, 
is there are so many procedures that are no longer available to surgeons because of flexible endoscopy. The idea, the idea of doing a common bile duct expiration, you know, is really very rare because of ERCP. The idea of putting in enteral access, you know, it's very rare because the idea of doing a peg, the idea of doing you know, colon resection for a benign polyp is really long gone with the advent of polypectomy and now EMR and ESD techniques and even achalasia is gone now, you know, in many, you know, departments because of the advent of poem as opposed to doing heller myotomy. And I think what's important for surgical residents is to understand that we have a basic understanding of surgical anatomy and GI anatomy that probably is not part of the gastroenterologic training for a medical GI doctor. And the idea of how to understand an anastomosis or post-surgical anatomy or even pre-surgical anatomy, I, I think is much clearer to a surgical resident. As for the ability to manipulate an endoscope, it does take practice. And this year is the first mandate year for the you know, flexible endoscopy curriculum, uh, which includes passing the fundamentals of endoscopic surgery exam. Uh, and so this year's 1,300 residents all had to pass that to be able to sit for their board as a mandate from the American Board of Surgery. And I applaud them for really stepping up and understanding that flexible endoscopy is really becoming an important part of general surgery. And I will someday, 50 years from now, the idea of doing a right hemicolectomy for a fecal cancer will no longer exist. We will be doing organ sparing surgery where transanally you'll go in, you'll resect a small two or three centimeter tumor inside the lumen. You'll identify lymph node status based on some type of genetic or radiographic imaging, and you'll spare this, this, the whole organ, similar to what we've done now for breast surgery and melanoma surgery and many other oncologic interventions. Yeah, I think the future is really promising um, in that front, kind of piggybacking on the FES curriculum and uh, resident endoscopic training. So, you know, your institution, um, you guys are very active with surgical endoscopy. And I think at other institutions, other hospitals, smaller programs, um, the surgeons aren't doing as much as the gastroenterologists are. And so uh, my first question is, do you think it would be worthwhile to implement a situation where if a hospital doesn't have a robust uh, surgical endoscopic um, endo endoscopy endoscopy program, my bad, um, should they have the residents do a rotation with a gastroenterologist? And then my second question is, um, if we can talk a little bit more about um, the FES and um, about you know, the, again, for people who don't get that hands-on training as much as they, um, other, uh, residency programs, um, how does that simulator weigh into the, the training and into that curriculum? Like how much weight should we be putting on the residents spending time in the sim lab? Again, very good question. So if I could start from the last section and work our way backwards. So being on a simulator, whether it be a high fidelity or low fidelity, you know, whether it be virtual reality or just some, you know, vacuum tubing to practice manipulating the handles of an endoscope will probably replace about 25 to 30 endoscopies. It, it will not make someone 
competent or proficient, but it will put someone up the learning curve for about 25 to 30 cases. So that's helpful. And there's a lot being said about getting on a different, uh, you know, avenue other than clinical endoscopy. Um, simulators do not have to be expensive virtual reality simulators to give a resident or a trainee the understanding and skill set to do this. It can be literally any type of thing. You know, the ACS um, model, which is just a bunch of vacuum tubing. There is one called the endoscopic training system from one of the companies. And even now, um, there are some that have developed an endoscopic training model using the FLS training box. And so there are a multitude of different things, and all of these things are available when you go on to the SAGES website and the American Board of Surgery website and look under the flexible endoscopy curriculum um, avenues for that. Next is the training. So where do people get experience when it comes to flexible endoscopy? And my comment is every single GI case done in an operating room should probably also have a flexible endoscopy, whether it be a Nissen or a bariatric procedure or a partial gastrectomy or a colectomy. Every single one of those cases should have an endoscopy to assess your anastomosis, to assess competency and integrity of your anastomosis, to check for bleeding. Although it's a little bit different than doing a full colonoscopy or doing a full EGD, that is a great way of getting hands-on experience. As for who to train with, it really doesn't matter, whether it be a medical or surgical endoscopist. As long as someone is dedicated to the education of the trainee, that's the most important thing, whether it be with a gastroenterologist or a surgeon. Obviously, if you work only with a colorectal surgeon, you might not get the upper endoscopic experience you need. But again, I think it's important to understand that anyone that understands how to train somebody um, is important. And even watching endoscopy. So many times residents will say, well, they go to the GI lab. I'm not there that day, so they're not working with me where they're getting to do the majority of the technical part. But even watching endoscopy is important. Or even watching YouTube videos or going on and watching a video atlas, understanding the difference between normal and abnormal pathology is something that can be learned outside of the clinical setting. So just the same way that we send residents to watch YouTube videos before going on and during surgical procedures, the same thing can be said for endoscopic procedures. As for how to get the numbers, I think one avenue, as you say, is to work with the gastroenterologist. I think the other one is to understand that surgeons in the rural community do a lot of endoscopy. So for all of you at, let's say, you know, a surgical program that does have rural areas nearby, many of the surgeons in the community spend about 50% of their time doing, do, uh, you know, doing colonoscopy. The number two procedure that surgeons do in the rural area is colonoscopy, all right, behind hernia. And so it is a very commonly done procedure, and I think that you might want to employ your program directors to come up with ways of being creative to get you out into the community, out into the real areas, to work with these surgeons that have the ability to do this um, kind of uh, exposure to a, a multitude of cases. Yeah, that's uh, that's very true. The rural rotation is, in my program has been very popular for the endoscopy training that they do get over there. Um, I did have one other um, question kind of related to what you were talking about. The It doesn't matter who is training you as long as they're committed to that education of the resident. Um, 
I think sometimes it's difficult, especially in laparoscopic and endoscopic surgery where your hands can't all be in this one space together, feeling the same thing together to um, uh, be able to instruct on kind of what you have in mind as far as how the resident should be changing their movements and um, or even as you're demonstrating yourself to dem uh, to explain what you're tweaking in your movements in order to accomplish a goal. Um, so, you know, is there room for us to develop programs to educate the educator or how do you um, how do you think that we improve upon the training of our trainees? Yeah, so you bring up another new um, concept, and that is the, the training of trainers. One of the concerns we have for flexible endoscopy is, in terms of the criticisms from the medical community, is that we don't give enough volume to our residents and our trainees. In fact, that the number of cases that it's felt to be competent or even to be assessed competent in a medical GI fellowship is over 270 cases, which seems like a very high amount. And for those of us that are kind of critical of this, we do know that the more you do, the better you are. I mean, that's just basic Erickson principle. We know that as you get more exposure, you know, getting up to the 10,000 case concept of doing something makes you better. But the question is, why do you need so many cases? And one of the things we question is how people are being trained, um, let's say, by the GI doctors. And is there a need for, you know, retooling the, the GI trainees. And the same thing has been said for surgery. Um, one of the um, new issues of training the trainers in minimal invasive surgery comes from the UK, and it's basically the idea of colon, you know, the, the, the colon course, okay, um, where we are training trainers on how to be better instructors. Um, and Sages has offered this, we call it the ADAPT program. We've done it for colorectal surgery. This year we'll be doing it for foregut surgery, where we actually have trainers being trained, and then we watch them while they're training. And you can see an incredible difference um, as to how the trainee is adopting these new techniques, interacting, staying involved. Um, and so you're absolutely right. I, I mean, not only do we need to retool the trainee, but maybe our trainers need to be retooled as well to kind of, uh, you know, understand the fact that you're in this environment where there's very little interaction. One of the things that the robot with the training, you know, obviously council has allowed for is for a physician to actually show people schematically where they want to go. And that's, I think, a very nice avenue. The other thing that I think is a nice avenue is, is watching video. You, you record your video, and if you have the time to go through an unedited video where you can go back and look at maybe your areas of inefficiency and areas of, uh, obviously, improvement that can come. Next, we move on um, to our segment called Tips and Tricks. Um, so in this segment, Dr. Marks, we would like to kind of talk about uh, POEM. Uh, we, would, uh, we were wondering if you could kind of, for our we have listeners worldwide, and um, there are still, you know, some communities that are not um, uh, educated on this uh, concept of poem. Uh, would you mind kind of walking our listeners through uh, what poem surgery is, um, and what is what other innovations like poem are kind of in the pipeline for 
um, the next generation of surgeons. Sure. Uh, thank you, Fred. So in the era of the mid-2000s, the concept of NOTES, which is natural orifice transluminal endoscopic surgery, was first promoted. It came out of the Hopkins group with Tony Kalu, the idea of poking the hole through the stomach, through the vagina, through the colon to access the peritoneal cavity. Uh, the initial you know, target organ was the gallbladder, and many of us all around the world did a multitude of different, you know, transvisceral type surgeries, appendectomies, diagnostic laparoscopies, and cholecystectomies. Um, and one of the investigators, a guy named Jay Pashrika, who was a gastroenterologist, poked a hole through the metasophagus in an animal model, saw the muscles, and said, I wonder if I can cut the muscles additionally in a, you know, similar to a hellermyotomy. And never was able to take it to clinical, you know, kind of expertise. And then a surgeon in Japan, in Yokohama, a gentleman named Haru Inoue, who also was very involved in the creation of ESD, which is endoscopic submucosal dissection, was the first to perform this procedure. And what it entails is creating a mucosotomy in the mid-esophagus for several centimeters and getting into the submucosal plane. And so that's between the mucosa and the underlying circular muscle fibers, dissecting down all the way onto the gastric wall for several centimeters, and then coming back and cutting the muscles um, that are in that area, whether it be the circular fibers or both the circular and longitudinal fibers, then coming back up and closing the submucosal tunnel at the top with some endoscopic clips. In the initial procedures, Again, it was uh, of concern, you know, would this lead to infectious or septic processes, mediastinitis, anything like that? And surprisingly, probably seven to 8,000 cases worldwide, infectious issues have really been negligible. Bleeding has been negligible, and the overlying process of going into that semi-crystal space, as you said, Trey, has opened us to a whole other avenue, what we call the third space now, or the fourth space in the GI tract where we can access other types of diseases. So yes, right now, achalasia and other esophageal motility disorders are predominantly being managed in this kind of minimally invasive fashion transorally. Other avenues for this is the pylorus. There are hundreds of cases now where for people for gastroparesis, instead of having a surgical pyloromyotomy, can undergo an endoscopic peroral, uh, uh, endoscopic pyloromyotomy called the GPOP or a G-POM. Um, it's a little bit easier even than an esophageal myotomy. The other new disease that's being um, uh, intervened upon is submucosal tumors, whether they be in the stomach or the esophagus, things like glyomyomas or GIST, which in the past have required a thoracoscopy or even a thoracotomy, to now also be accessed in this submucosal space um, all transorally and removing these lesions out to the mouth. The technique itself uh, is done under general anesthetic, whether it be in the GI lab or the OR. Uh, it requires no new procedural equipment. All the procedural equipment are those that already were available on a GI shelf, and they include a sclerotherapy needle, a monopolar current with a triangular tip knife, which is just a, a endoscopic knife, and then we use endoscopic clips to close the mucosotomy. And it really has become now something that I find much easier even than a hellermyotomy, and we're able to visualize the muscles very easily. And even now, patients that have had a prior heller, which have uh, failed symptoms where they're recurring their dysphagia, we're able to approach these people 
um, and save them, you know, the need for, let's say, esophagectomy in many of these cases. This is such interesting stuff, Dr. Marks. Um, thank you for enlightening us. I have a very quick question. Uh, just curious, are these techniques being uh, employed in um, the pediatric generation uh, population as well? That's a very good question. So the youngest patient that has undergone a poem that I've heard of is three, and that was in China. The youngest patient I've done is 17. Achalasia, as you know, is a very strange disease. It crosses all age groups, all genders, all races. The youngest, as I said, is 17. The oldest I've done is 96. Um, but yes, it can be in pediatrics. The other thing that people are looking at, and maybe this is a leading question, is that what about other muscular-based diseases like Hirschsprung's? Could we do something transanally where we identify the area of lost neurons and cut the muscles endoscopically or subcosally in the pediatric patient? And people have looked at this in both the animal model and uh, look at it in the preclinical phase as well of approaching other aspects of the GI um, tract uh, with the submucosal uh, dissection. Within the same segment of uh, tips and tricks, uh, Dr. Marks, we wanted to kind of um, kind of ask you about ERCP. You are one of the surgeons that uh, do ERCP, and not a whole lot of surgeons out there uh, do this procedure. And I know there's always this um, uh, you know, anxiety in the general surgery res residents that, oh, like we should know how to do an ERCP and we want, you know, people want to get practice with, practice with it. So for our senior residents who do have um, some exposure to uh, performing or seeing an ERCP and the junior attendings, what are some of the tips and tricks that you would like to share with us uh, for them to remember uh, while performing an ERCP? Thank you. So I, I will admit um, ERCP is an advanced endoscopic technique. It is something that does take a little bit more subspecialized training um, beyond just basic or even mid-level flexible endoscopy. And not every gastroenterologist even performs ERCP anymore because it has become so subspecialized. In terms of the tips and tricks, I, I will say that I'd like the surgical residents and the surgeons to understand the limitations, indications, and contraindications to ERCP probably as much as well as the actual techniques. And I know this is under the tips and tricks segment, so I'm kind of cheating here a little bit. But when I look at the indications for ERCP, let's say before a lap coli, I think truly there are only two of them. One of them is cholangitis. We know that obviously these people need to be addressed very quickly and your avenues for cholangitis is either an ERCP with decompression, whether it be a sphincterotomy or a stent placement or both, or a percutaneous approach, transhepatically with a, you know, a placement of a, of a PTC catheter. In terms of the other indication, it's probably persistent jaundice. And I'm not talking about someone with a bilirubin of one or one and a half or two, but that person with a persistent jaundice, five, six, that also is ecteric, maybe having pruritus, plus or minus, you know, other LFT abnormalities, those people probably need to can be considered for a preoperative ERCP just to rule out a periantibary neoplasm. And again, you're going to put that together, you know, possibly with an ultrasound or an MRCT, but ERCP in and of itself preoperatively really isn't necessary. And what I try to 
convince my surgeons and myself is that even if someone may have a stone, there are many things that you can do at the time of a lap coli, including a calandrogram and flushing a stone with some glucagon or even passing some catheters and wires and baskets that will save someone from an ERCP, which definitely is associated with complications, bleeding, perforation, pancreatitis, and things like that. The other place that we're seeing a lot of ERCP use, unfortunately, is in people that are post-bariatric uh, bypass and the bariatric, you know, surgically altered anatomy. We cannot get to the papilla very easily transorally in these patients, especially with a 75 or 150 centimeter root limb. There is no way of getting back up into the pancreatic biliary limb. And so these people will need some type of trans remnant or transgastric access to the duodenum. And that's where the surgeon becomes involved. Even if they're not actually doing the ERCT, they will need to be there to help the endoscopist access the duodenum. Now, the other ways of doing it is radiographically. You can have a radiologist put a peg tube into the gastric remnant, and you have the luxury of waiting four to six weeks and coming back and dilating that tract. You can then access the gastric remnant percutaneously without having to do surgery. The final thing that's important for ERCP is in those people that have had a complication after, let's say, some type of biliary surgery, whether it be a transplant or even just a lap coli, they develop a leak or a recurrence or retain common dust stone. As for the techniques of doing ERCP, again, it's usually under moderate sedation. Sometimes it will require airway management and general anesthesia. And then accessing the bile duct, it can be very challenging. It is somewhat technically important to understand wires and catheters, but very similar to our vascular surgeons and our neurosurgeons, things have become very much based on wires and catheters with the understanding also of the uh, use of monopolar, you know, energy and surgical, you know, um, energy um, units. Um, the final thing I would say about ERCP is understanding the complications related to ERCP. It is very common that after ERCP, we will see retroperitoneal air or intraperitoneal air. And what I always tell people is assess the patient first, okay? Touch their belly, look at them. If they don't have peritonitis, if they don't have, obviously, signs of sepsis, and all they have is air in the retroperitoneum, air is not bad. Fluid is bad, all right? So if we see fluid in the retroperitoneum after an ERCP, that's probably a perforation. We see fluid intraperitoneal, same thing as polyperforation. So as a surgeon, doing the procedure, and I know you, you were hoping for tips and tricks on the ERCP, and I'm kind of cheating here a little bit, but I think it's also important because, more importantly, surgeons will be asked to help the endoscopist in doing the ERCP, as well as managing the complications of the ERCP. And the last thing we want to do is operate on a patient that just has some retroperitoneal air just from subucosal dissection. And they can also come after colonoscopy as well. In terms of during a large polypectomy, we see retroperitoneal air and free air, and we obviously want to assess the patient initially before just jumping in and doing something surgically. That was really great, extremely high-yield clinical information, and I thank you very much for that. Um, so we're going to transition to our final segment here, the final five. Um, just a few uh, light questions for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more personally. So our first question for you is, is there someone that you can um, pick out in your mind as far as um, somebody outside of medicine who has been influential in your life and your career? Wow, that's 
a loaded question. I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to say my wife, obviously, right? I mean, that's <laughs> the answer that we're supposed to give here. But she's in medicine. She's in nursing, so that doesn't count. I would say my children, but they're obviously don't count either. Um, I, I think that when I look at leaders, I, I think there are so many in both, you know, political and, you know, spiritual and such. But I guess if I have to give you one answer, if you want a quick one, um, I'll say Jeff Galloway. Uh, Jeff Galloway is a, uh, a marathon runner who is a trainer now, who has devised a system for running marathons that I've been following for the last 10 or 12 years. And he's, I'm kind of a, a groupie of his. So I, maybe not the answer you wanted, but uh, I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> awesome. Our next question is, what is your favorite movie? Oh, uh, this is good. I'm going to have to go with Deadpool. I, I, I'm going to cheat here, Shreya. I'll go with The Godfather, Part One, uh, Glorious Bastards, and Mary Poppins. Um, question number three. During residency, did you have a guilty pleasure go-to snack or drink that you used to, it may not have been the healthiest thing? Well, um, snacks-wise, I have very poor eating habits. Um, I eat like a five-year-old, so my favorite eating habit is uh, peanut butter and jelly. Um, and in fact, when I'm home alone and my wife is at home, I, I eat peanut butter and jelly as my main course. And surprisingly, that's not even with bread. I just use a spoon and eat that. When I'm in the hospital, my major breakfast and lunch, and then sometimes dinner, is peanut M&Ms and Diet Coke. Again, things that are less than healthy. And when it comes to well-being, maybe that should be cut out of our podcast. <laughs> Question number four, if you were to compete in the Olympics, whether it's winter or summer, what event would you want to do? Well, I don't think I would qualify for anything, you know, unless there was like a senior Olympics, you know, for doctors that live in Cleveland, Ohio, that have my name. But I would say that I would love to compete in something like the, the bobsled. It looks really exciting. And um, I love roller coasters, so I think I would have to go with that. And our last question for you, right now, if we were to grab your white coat, what would we find in or on it? Well, there might be some M&Ms in one or two pockets. There are probably uh, no other things. I don't own a stethoscope, which is sad. I don't carry around a lot of books because obviously we have so many things available, like what you guys are doing today, that are obviously uh, much easier to do in terms of education other than carrying a book. Um, so I would go with that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Marks. This was a very informative um, podcast for, t for our listeners, um, especially the ones trying to, uh, you know, see if uh, MIS is what they want in their future. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today. We really appreciate you. Thank you very much. As I said, I'm very honored to be included in this incredible process. And uh, I hope your uh, listeners uh, have gained something from your, uh, your foray into MIS and flexible endoscopy today. Until next time, dominate the day.